Good to see you this morning. Happy Father's Day, of course. There's a wonderful aroma of uh, Old Spice in the room this morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, as uh, Matt said, if you don't know me, my name's Richard, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are in John 4 this morning. I don't know if um, any of you noticed this, that um, some, some time back, there was a, the, the kind of the output of the UK national census, which showed that for the first time in our history, less than half of the UK population reported themselves as Christian. Previously, that number had always been over 50%, but now just 46% of adults in the UK regard themselves as Christian. That means that 27.5 million people in our country would call themselves Christians. 27.5 million. At the same time, corresponding data tells us that church attendance is is under 3 million, 27.5 million Christians, under 3 million at church. So the question is, where are they all? On the uh, BBC website, there's a little Christianity section, and one of the contributors plainly says what I think so many of those 27.5 million people who tick the I am Christian box uh, would say. Sorry, guys, can I just ask, would you mind continuing the conversation outside, just because I think it's going to be important so that people can, uh, can hear what's going on? Thanks so much. That's great. I appreciate that. So on the, on the Christianity section on the BBC website, it, uh, it, there's, there's a section where people say, well, this is what I think it means to be a Christian. And uh, one chap says, I used to think that uh, a Christian was someone who was born in England, was christened as a baby, and did nobody any harm. That's how I try to live my life. There's a... Uh, Just kind of spoiler alert, that's not what it means to be a Christian. We'll get into that later on. But uh, there's some stuff in today's passage that gets underneath some of this and I think helps to clear up the confusion that so much of our culture understands about what it actually does mean to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, to love God and to be a worshipper. So as I said, we're, uh, we're continuing in the book of John. We're following Jesus as he works his way through the valleys and the towns and the villages of Israel announcing the arrival of a new kingdom and a new way to know God and uh, that he is God the Son sent from heaven, come to save us and draw us in and that now salvation for all people is possible through faith in him and through dependence in him. Over the last couple of weeks, if you've been around, you would have, uh, you'd have heard the, uh, the story of Nicodemus, one of the respected important, influential teachers of the law in Jerusalem, the man charged with defending the Jewish faith, who questions Jesus. He comes to him under the cover of night, fearful about his reputation. He comes to Jesus under the cover of night to question him. Today, we're literally at the other end of the social scale. We'll encounter a Samaritan woman at a well where she's drawing up water, and she's covered in sin, And she's at the well in the scorching heat and light of the noonday sun. It couldn't really be further from the Nicodemus story. But then again, the woman we're about to encounter couldn't really be further from Nicodemus. She's a lowly outcast, and rather than being covered in respect and glory like Nicodemus was, she's covered in sin and shame and disgrace. And John, who writes this, is deliberately contrasting these people because he wants us to see that this is exactly the type of person that Jesus has come for, the lowly and the poor of spirit and the outcast and the sinner. 
And the way that he does that, and the way that he writes the story is just masterful. So we're going we're gonna to read the story in three chunks, and then uh, I'll give a recap and some background to help us to, under, to kind of get acquainted with the story and to understand what's going on here and what this means for us. So if you want to follow along in the church Bibles, we're in page 1066. This is John 4, and uh, we're going to read the first chunk. I'm actually going to get my daughter Hannah to come and read this. So Hannah, do you want to come and read the first 15 verses of uh, John 4 for us, please? There's a microphone right there. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plots of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there and Jesus Tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw her water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus asked, answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that you asked for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his son and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So firstly, we have Jesus, a Jew, talk, he's the chosen one of God. He's talking to a Samaritan. Now, that alone would have been shocking in that culture. Um, Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. Jews saw Samaritans as impure for a number of reasons. They were, in the Jewish mindset, heretics who claimed to worship God, but they didn't do it the Jewish way. And so this kind of put them at odds with each other, very often violent odds as well. Samaritans did worship God, but they only believed in the first five books of uh, the Old Testament. They only believed that those books were valid. So for them, Moses was the only true prophet. And the only books of the Bible that were authoritative and to be believed for them were the ones that Moses had written, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they had no real concept of what God was doing and had been doing through the people of Israel and the temple and the centrality of Jerusalem as a place of worship. And so they were religiously impure as far as the Jews believed as well. And finally, and maybe most crucially today, <laughs> this Samaritan was a woman. Men did just not stop and talk to women like that. 
Women in that custom could make a Jewish man unclean, and they were socially regarded as inferior to men. That's just the way it was in first century Israel. So here is Jesus, and he's just busting through all these social and cultural norms. And it's noon. It's in the baking heat of the middle of the day. This is not when women came into the well. They would usually do it early in the morning, in the cool of the day. And they would come together and travel together and help each other and talk together. But this woman is here by herself. <laughs> it's the wrong time of day. A time of day when she wouldn't encounter the other woman from the village. And there's a valid reason for that, too. Because as we're about to see... This is a woman who's essentially in hiding from the rest of the women in the town. She's a woman in disgrace. So instead of coming to the well with the other woman, she comes at a time when there's no ways that she'd encounter anybody else. And she has nowhere to go, and she has no way of dealing with the situation because she's a social outcast. And Jesus is just about to bring all of that up to the surface because that's what he does. That's what he does in our lives as well. He looks beyond the immediate and what we think we need, and he goes straight to the heart of what we do actually need. So he's planning to go there with this woman to, to prod at this wound that this woman has in her life and to expose in her that she needs a savior, that she needs him. But first he has a request. Can you get me some water from the well, he asks. And she says, why are you even talking to me? You're a Jew. You're a man. And look, you don't even have a bucket to draw the water up. How on earth and are you here? And why are you asking me for a drink? This just doesn't make any sense. And Jesus replies to her, if you knew who I really was, you'd be the one asking for a drink. Because I've got a kind of water that is a gift from God. And unlike the water that you'll find at the bottom of this muddy well... The water that I give you is the Holy Spirit, the power and the peace and the presence of God. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, His presence and power that He fills and places in followers of His Son. It does the work of illumination in us. It opens our eyes to uh, our need for Him. And every day thereafter, the Holy Spirit sustains us if you're a follower of Christ. When our heads droop, when we are disappointed and broken, the Spirit of God wells up in us and it speaks to our spirit and it reminds us who we are. You're a child of God. Keep your head up. Keep your eyes focused on Him. The situation won't last forever. God, your Father, the Holy Spirit, is always speaking to us, testifying to us that God is good, that God knows what you need, that God is your Father who provides. Therefore, stand firm in what you believe. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is, metaphorically, therefore, the water that quenches every thirst you've ever had or ever will. Jesus is revealing this to this woman this is what you need. It's not water from the bottom of that well, which will hydrate for a short time and then run out. You need water from me that will satisfy forever and will never run out. Now, she's, of course, not yet seen the spiritual significance of what Jesus is saying. She's still thinking about the water in, in the well and the, the daily struggle of her having to kind of lug her buckets up and down the hill to the well. So she says, yes, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and keep having to come back. And what follows is the genius of Jesus, who hears it and sees her immediate need, 
But more importantly, he sees beyond that to a deeper need in her life, to a, a kind of a deeper ache within her. This, this isn't just about water, which she'll drink and need again. He's offering her all that her dry soul needs. Think on that as you consider how Jesus might be at work in your own life right now, in your place of need. Maybe you're in a place where it feels isolating or it's a painful struggle. Let's see how Jesus responds to her request for water. Hannah, do you want to come and read the next section for us? He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said... What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors, ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. She asked for water. He tells her to go get her husband. Those two things don't make any sense in the same sentence. But actually, they really do in this situation. Jesus is clearly aware that something isn't right in this scenario. This, this woman is in disgrace and distress. She's an outcast. He can see that. There is pain and there's suffering here. And Jesus has come to deal with that pain. So look what he does. He goes right to the heart of the wound. Go and get your husband, he says. And then it all comes out, I have no husband. And Jesus just calls out her situation. He says that realistically, she's had many husbands. And the man that she's living with at the moment, she isn't really, she's not even married to him. It's an illegitimate relationship. And this is a source of pain to her because it covers her in immorality and it places her on the outskirts of her community. So here she is. She finds herself at the well in isolation and shame and disgrace. And she asks for water. But Jesus wants to give her the free gift of life, the Holy Spirit, the power and peace of God in her life. But first, he needs to deal with her shame. That's all part of the package of making her whole. That's how he works in our life. He isn't just interested in meeting our immediate needs. He wants to go deeper and bring healing and wholeness. He's interested, and he meets us where we're at, and so he tells her everything about her life. And the way she responds is magnificent. It's a, it's a model for us. I mentioned earlier that Samaritans had their own take on the Hebrew Scriptures. So they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the, the ones written by Moses. And therefore, two significant facts are important. 
Firstly, the, the only prophet that a Samaritan would have ever recognized was Moses. He was the one and only prophet of God. But she says, having had her eyes opened, I can see that you're a prophet. In fact, it would have been more like, I can see you're the prophet. Her eyes are opening. Her heart is opening. The Holy Spirit is at work in her. And secondly, because the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, they believed that the place where you were supposed to go to worship was a, was a mountain where Abraham had set up worship, a place called Mount Gerizim, where he'd gone and uh, set up worship. And on this mountain, you were supposed to stand and declare blessings over the people of Israel. And so she believed that was the only legitimate place to worship God. And, uh, and that was opposed to the Jews, of course, who believed that the temple was in Jerusalem, and that's where you should go and worship God. And so it was a controversy between them. And so not wanting to answer the question that Jesus has asked her about her husband and wanting to shift the conversation away from herself, she tries to kind of push it back to Jesus by raising a theological dispute. That's a helpful thing to keep in mind, isn't it? If someone challenges you, make it about a theological dispute. Jesus is like, no, we're going to talk about this. She says, we Samaritans worship on this mountain, Gerizim, but you Jews believe that we should worship in Jerusalem. But Jesus is just laser-focused on her heart and her deep need. And he just says, where you worship is not actually the issue. That's not what's important. How you worship is... Being a follower of Christ is not that you were born in England and were christened as a baby. Jesus is saying, the whole point of me giving you water, the water of life, the Holy Spirit of God, is to enable you to realize your greatest need, your deepest thirst, can only be found and satisfied in me. Not in geographic locations, not in any religious ritual. What you're looking for is here. You can receive the gift of life right here at this dusty well, in your shame and your disgrace. And it's found in me. And it's for all people, in full, glorious view of the noonday sun. Even Samaritan people, even women, even people covered in sin and shame and disgrace. I can deal with that, he's saying. I came to deal with that. I found you in this place, and I found you in this state precisely in order to deal with that stuff in your life. There's no accident here. This is what I came for. Now, this woman's obviously got some stuff to think about now, so let's, let's see how the story continues. This is verse 27 to, 20, uh, to 38. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, See a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it is still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. 
I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So, um, so what's happened here is the disciples have returned with the weekly shop, and uh, they're obviously shocked to see Jesus talking to this woman. Meanwhile, this woman who's just encountered Jesus and has had her life turned upside down has run down into the town to get the other Samaritans to come out and see who she thinks could be the Messiah. So you can kind of picture the scene. It says the Samaritans are on their way up from the village to the well. They're running towards him. The disciples, meanwhile, are saying, mate, you better have something to eat. Here's some bread. And Jesus, who probably has an eye on both situations, just calmly says, my food is deeper and more significant than that bread. My food is to do what the Father tells me to do. It's the work of my Father. And then he starts talking about farming. He's seeing the Samaritans running up the hill. I kind of imagine him sitting on the well with a sort of smile on his face and a, and a glint in his eye. And he says, in farming, you plant seed, and then you wait, and then in a few months, you go and harvest the crop. That makes sense. But I'm telling you that the harvest is ripe now. And look, here it comes. The harvest for the souls of men and women is now. The day of salvation is upon you. I have come to bring salvation and freedom. I've just brought it to a disgraced woman at this well, and I've come to announce freedom and bring salvation to all people, even Samaritans. That's what the kingdom of God will look like now. And you can just kind of imagine the Samaritans running up the hill to the well to see this Jesus. Could this be the Messiah? As Jesus turns to his disciples and says, look, the field is ripe for harvest. The world is ripe for harvest. Let's go and harvest. It's a fantastic story. And I think there's three things, three key things that I want us to take from this about who Jesus is and what he does in our lives. I want to highlight Jesus who sees us, Jesus who fills us, and Jesus who sends us. First thing, Jesus who sees us. This, this story is about a woman on the, the furthest fringe of society. She's a social outcast, and she's religiously impure as far as the Jews would see it. She's living in a moral life. She's in shame. She is in every sense of the word, poor in spirit. And yet Jesus sees her, and he comes to her when nobody else would. He sees her. He sees her at the well. He sees her struggle. He sees her isolation. And he sees even deeper than that. He sees her pain, and he comes to her still. Gateway, make no mistake. He sees you, even in your sin. He sees you in your shame. He sees you in your struggle. And he comes to you nonetheless with nothing but mercy and compassion for you. He comes to save you. There's a song we'll sing in a little while. One of the lyrics goes like this. It gets me every time. My failures and flaws, Lord, you've seen them all, and yet you still call me friend. But his salvation isn't cheap. It's, it's free, but it's not cheap. We need to know that distinction. He doesn't offer cheap grace to you. He presses on the wounds that hinder us because he wants to liberate us from them. He asks the questions that we hide in the darkness where sin and struggle live, but that we need to bring out into the daylight where he is. The question he asked the woman was, where is your husband? 
It was the most painful question, and yet it was the kindest thing he could have done. He doesn't want to paper over the cracks and just clean you up a little bit. He wants to go to the most broken and painful places in your life and renew you. And that involves dealing with sin and struggle in your life. Your sin and shame does not repulse him. It doesn't frighten him off. He is full of compassion for you, and he is mighty to save. He gives this woman salvation. But as part of the package, he's addressing the deeper issues in her life, and he's setting her free. That's what he's like. He wasn't afraid of her uncleanness. He's not afraid of your uncleanness in your sin and your struggle. He sees you. He makes unclean situations clean. He will press on those places sometimes, but he does so to set you free from it. The second thing is Jesus fills us. In the Old Testament, one of the most devastating indictments on the people of God comes in Jeremiah 2.13, when God says this to his people. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, their own wells, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They have forgotten me, the spring of living water that constantly provides and constantly gives life. Instead, they've dug their own wells, broken ones that can't hold water, ones that let dirt back inside and pollute the water. Vix and I have, um, over the years, supported WaterAid. Their, their mission is to bring clean water to parts of the world that don't have fresh water and sanitation. The reason they exist is because 800 children die each day for lack of clean water. That's just children. Lack of clean water kills. It's a tragic reality that we can have billionaires and children dying for lack of clean water on the same planet. And that's one we should pray for and do something about. Jesus offers clean water, living water, the Holy Spirit. The power of God that comes to you, that fills you, that opens your eyes to your need for God, that sustains you in your faith, and that cleans you up, and that causes you to love God daily, and speaks life into you, and testifies to you that God is good, and that God is worthy, and that God is for you. If you want to know God, if you want to walk in freedom and peace, and know the power of God within you, you must ask for and receive the Holy Spirit again and again. Think of it like a, a sail on a boat that needs the filling of wind to set it on course and to give it purpose. It's not just a one-off event. Like the sail, we need to be constantly and ongoingly filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray even now, would you just blow on us? Fill our sails again, I pray. Help us to see and to receive and to cherish Jesus and to behold him in his glory. Don't look for this elsewhere. Don't drink from polluted wells. Jesus offers us clean water, living water. His invitation to you is this. If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Jesus fills us up. The third thing is that Jesus sends us out. Look at how this woman responds to meeting Jesus. This disgraced social outcast of a woman who's had her life changed runs straight into the village with confidence and newfound freedom and tells them all about Jesus. And the villagers, who would have previously given her nothing, catch her fire, and they respond to her testimony, and they follow her and run up the hill with her towards Jesus. That's one of the things that the infilling of the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit of 
God within you not only brings life and freedom to you, but he causes faith and confidence to rise up in you to bring others into his salvation and freedom as well. Evangelism, telling others about Jesus, is a mark of a spirit-filled believer. As those who've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and if you're a Christian, you have been, we should, we should go. The harvest is ripe. Whether or not it looks that way to us is actually quite irrelevant. God tells us that with the coming of Jesus, it is ready. That's what the story tells us, Gateway, that there is a harvest white and ready to be reaped in. And he says, go and reap it in. To be a Christian isn't a matter of what you mark on your government census. To be a Christian is to recognize and to respond in faith to the Jesus who sees us, who comes to us, who fills us and walks with us, and then sends us out with his power and his authority to preach good news into bad situations and to declare the peace and the power and the life of the gospel everywhere we place our feet. That's what a spirit-filled Christian is. You'll have opportunities all week long ahead to do this. Here's some next steps and some uh, questions for you to consider. The first question is, what is the barrier question for you that prevents you from fully coming to Jesus? What shame or struggle are you carrying that keeps you hidden away from him and locked up in a little prison of your own making? For the woman, that question is, where is your husband? What's the equivalent question for you? What, what question would you least like Jesus to ask you today, but you need to know that you most need him to? What's your equivalent of where is your husband? What's the deepest pain, the deepest anxiety, the deepest fear, the deepest rejection, the deepest regret? It's totally okay to front up to that and to bring it to him. He sees you anyway. He sees you. He sees you. He sees your uncleanness. He sees your struggle. He's safe. My failures and flaws, Lord, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. The second question is, where are you drinking from? I'm clearly not talking about the pub. I'm talking about deeper things. Where are you drawing your source of supply? If it's not from Jesus, it's from a broken cistern. It's a leaky well, a polluted well. It might offer some level of temporary hydration, but it's also a well that could quite possibly disease you and kill you. Jesus offers the water of life, the Holy Spirit of God, the power and sustaining peace and presence of God. All who are thirsty, he says, come to me and drink, and you will never thirst again. We need to come and drink, and we need to come and drink again, and then we need to come and drink again. He has enough. Life will drain you and it will dehydrate you, why would you hydrate at a leaky, polluted well when there is an endless supply of living water on offer to you? Third question, who are you telling? The harvest is white. It's ready. God is at work in the world, even now, even through the headlines, shaping things, working through situations, causing hearts to ask deep questions, revealing, if nothing else, the total inability of mankind to save ourselves. There's an imperative on us as the followers of Christ to go into the world and tell others and reap this harvest that Jesus promises is ready and to help others to come and drink from the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit. I think 
as a, as a moment of self-reflection, this is an area that I don't think we've actually fully responded to at all since COVID. I think that's probably true of many churches. I was at a conference for leaders some weeks back. There was 90 of us there leading churches. And um, we were doing a session where we were encouraged to break into four groups, four groups of Ephesians 4 gifts, pastor teachers, apostles, evangelists, and uh, the other one that I forget, which I'll remember in a minute. And of the 90, only four responded to evangelism. It's only four people in a room full of leaders. It's a problem for us. We need to seek the power of the Holy Spirit to increase our evangelistic witness. Nick Mudge has um, been leading an evangelistic life group and doing an excellent job of leading the charge of that for us. Across the whole church, there's 500 of us. Four people signed up. Five, I think, maybe. We need to be better at this. I'm praying weekly, daily, very often, that God would increase us here in number and in depth, but he asks us to partner with him in this. There is a harvest to be reaped. Jesus tells us to be ready for the harvest. There's work for us here. We need to hear that. There's work for us to do. Who are you telling? My challenge to you, my challenge to myself, it's a simple one really, is just start somewhere. Just, just write down the name of one person who's yet to know Jesus and start praying for them and start praying for the, the right opportunity over the next season to tell them about the Savior who sees them in their sin and their shame. The Savior who tells us the harvest is ready. Look how the story ends. Verse 39 to 42. Look what it says. It says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She told them. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've come. We've heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. My friends, whoever you are and whatever your life is like, whatever your circumstances, whatever you're carrying, Jesus sees you and he fills you and he sends you out. Let's get the band back up and uh, I'll pray for us. There's plenty here to think about, plenty to respond to. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would so fill you today and would so impact your life that you have no choice but to have your eyes open to the glory of Christ because we need the Holy Spirit to see the glory of Christ. We're not naturally predisposed to do it ourselves. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would so fill you that you just cherish him and cannot help but go into the world and tell. That's what we do when we love stuff. We talk about great movies and great views and great holidays we've been on because we love them and we want to tell others about them. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray, would you just blow on us now? We are a sail on a boat with nowhere to go and no energy without you. So I pray now you'd come and fill our sails. Come and fill the main sails of our life and set us on course. Lord, I pray that where that for some of us means opening our eyes, maybe for the first time, to see the glory of Jesus, the Messiah, who's come to us and saves us, sees us in our sin and shame and loves us nonetheless, that you would work amongst us now to do that. And I pray that you would fill us up that these streams of water would bubble up in us to eternal life. Holy Spirit, thank you that you testify to us. You're constantly talking to us, telling us when our heads are down to keep our heads up and to keep focused on the glory of God and that you have all that we need. And I pray that you would give us running shoes now. Lord, send us out, I pray. Send us out. Help us to, to gather in the harvest to a broken world, Lord God, to a, a needy world, to a world that has covered itself in disgrace. I pray that you would help us now to go and to speak good news into bad situations and to bring the order and the peace and the power of the gospel into every place that we go. 
We ask this for your glory and in your name. Amen.